The Little Written Podcast. Conversations with writers. I'm Thomas Oliver Evans, and this is the first in what will probably be a sporadic series of interviews with writers about how they approach their work. Uh, in this episode, I speak to Nick Hennigan, uh, artistic director of Maverick Theatre Company, the presenter of the Literary London Radio Show, about the various plays that he's written and staged over the last 20 odd years. I was speaking to him in a pub, which is appropriate since Nick is also the founder of the London Literary Pub Crawl. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm here in the Wheat Sheaf with uh, Nick Hennigan. I'm um, piggybacking on the back of a Global Lab interview. I, I wanted to talk to Nick about his writing in general. But I know you've done uh, recently a very extensive interview about your career with uh, The Zone Show. Also yeah. talking to someone called Thomas Evans a bit disturbingly. Um, uh, so people can find that if they want to know about your career. So I thought maybe it might be nice to talk about um, your process of writing in general, because that's something that interests me. Yeah. So you've written, uh, well, I know you've written two plays at least. There's Henry V, uh, Lion of England. There's one called Pals. Oh, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. There is a short film called Boy, Girl, Boy, Bike, which I watched the other day. Oh, did you? I did, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Like I, you've recorded the VHS <laughs> copy right onto YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's all, when you got that left, it was actually, a, it was actually a, a, a ITV, it was an ITV thing called First Cuts, that's where it came from, but it was, um, oh wow, yeah, I'd literally, I've just put it up on, on YouTube, I'm yeah, yeah, did you see that? <laughs> I think, am I, am I right in thinking you've also done an adaptation of A Christmas Carol? Yeah, I've Animal Farm. Uh, yeah, not Animal Farm, no, because I was going to, I couldn't get the rights. Right, okay. Uh, but Christmas Carol we did last year. I've done f- just four plays now, I suppose. I did a thing called A Ghost of a Chance as well. Which, okay, I didn't pick up which, on that. Uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's I mean, I, I suppose, because the writing really came from, I know I've always written, actually, but it's one of those things, if you're, because you write as well, don't you? So if you're a writer, sometimes you don't realise it, which is maybe a strange thing to say, but I don't realise you're a writer. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, because you're doing it all the time. So, so, and I, I've written diaries from when I was, I mean, I wouldn't write seriously anything in there, because I know my mum would read them all, you know, mm-hmm. but I've got diaries going back from when I was 12 and 11 and 13 and played action man with Ian Nichols over the fence, you know, this, and it's, 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 uh, it, there's nothing emotional in there, but I just kind of didn't realise that uh, I was, and I'm drawing, I used to draw a lot as well, I, mean, I, I joined the Scouts, uh, my brother was in the Scouts, I joined the Scouts. And I got his artist badge. It was great because you had to keep a, ske- a, ske- a sketch pad, you know, and I'd, for six months. And I got sketch pads going back then. I'd, I'd do a drawing a day, you know. So it's kind of, it's odd to talk about the writing in that sense because it, it's only recently at my old age that I've realised that in actual fact um, I've always written. But it's just the different structures. So, and uh, so the first play was was Henry V, Lion of England. Mm, and you've pl- you've had that one on many times since, right? Yeah, I mean this was nineteen ninety two, and uh, and I, I was working on the radio, which is a bit like being on a football team. You know, you can do quite well. And mm-hmm. Actually, when I had radio, that was when the money started to go up because it got very competitive then, and I'd got quite good figures, so I couldn't. So have people a lot more people money. didn't want to go into it while you were there. They knew they, no, they couldn't right. compete. You know, I'd like, of course. I mean, we did a thing called Romantica. Well, and it's, it's that kind of knowledge. So I, I always feel if I've got one little talent, it's hopefully I'll know what people will like. Mm-hmm. And you can't please everyone all the time. You never can. But I did a radio show. I mean, I got into radio kind of by accident because I was a volunteer. I would, I'd volunteered on a community station. And then ended up working at uh, BRB, which is the commercial station in the Midlands, like Capital Radio, um, uh, down here. In, well, you know, Capital Radio is a commercial station. It's now called Free Radio, I think. But uh, So I got into that, and it was quite fortunate because I hadn't done anything... 
I hadn't sort of got any academic qualifications, but I got onto the radio at the time when it was still run by a lot of the early BBC Oxbridge boys and girls, you know. So, so I was in a, a slightly elevated uh, environment in some ways. I mean, it was also a bit of a bear pit, I have to say, mm-hmm. but that's, that's another story. So I did radio for... I still hold the record, by the way, of being sacked most times from BIB. Right. Bob Lawrence, who worked on Caroline, thinks he got sacked more times than I, but he didn't. Nine times, yeah, Nine thanks. Times. Nine times. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. We I'm not quite sure why I'm proud of that. But it was kind of like... And I, I kind of started this, this thing called Romantica, which is a terrible name now, but it was... A, a, um, and it was unusual, because uh, it was... Uh, uh, the, 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 B&B was... I mean, there was only really sort of B&B and Radio 1 mm-hmm. you know, in terms of commercial music in the Midlands. And in most places in the country, there were only the two commercial station so um, and the, we couldn't crack Saturday night figures and, and I'd started on the community side as community information manager looking after community groups and making sure they got some sort of publicity which is great I didn't I love doing that although the, a lot of the other guys were a bit cynical you know like, oh, we come the worthies you know but uh, we had fun so I turned it from peers public service announcements we did community commercials you know uh, and then my boss at the time who was next BBC Blake he said um, I, I was doing bits of production on a morning show and he said look we can't do anything with Saturday nights why don't you ever go and they've got their big names up on a Saturday night and the, the breakfast show, people like Les Ross, who have got a legends in the Midlands and, and they've all been OBE'd now, I think. They've all got awards. Um, and, uh, and so what I do, I said, well, like, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to shut me gob and actually play back-to-back music and try and make a radio show that sends people to sleep. Oh, um, OK. Which was... Uh, did you follow this up of. with your plays afterwards? Then? Yeah, <laughs> I was listening actually to those composers just on a nine-hour piece of music with a view to making them sleep. But it was kind of what I wanted to do, and it, it was was to create a an environment, you know, a, a, a kind of uh, it wasn't just a radio show. And most at that time it was that was this is you know everyone spoke between each other. So I used to shut me gob, and I just I placed it, and then I said let's open the phone lines, take dedications, so people people could phone up and go, you know, good Lord, Bunny, I love you. And sometimes I'd put them on air, sometimes I'd read them out. Winds and Green Prison became a massive, they became massive fans because they were all writing, you know, the, the census stamp would come in on the letters every week. It's pre email, obviously, would come in from the Winds and Green with messages of love to their wives. And this massive thing, and we got more listeners in the Midlands than Radio 2 had got nationally. I mean, there were millions of it. And I was quite fluky, really, you know. So, and it worked. So, and they, I think they paid me another fiver after that. So, and that's kind of why it, uh, as I say, radio wasn't, was not really. Uh, Commercial radio wasn't really commercial in those days, but yeah, it sort of made me realise that there's a there's a you know uh, the, the actual the process of writing. I mean, Aitbourne talks about this, doesn't he? Alan Aitbourne, he says the very last thing I ever do is the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Now I'm nothing like as clever as Aitbourne or any of those, but I, 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 it wasn't until I did Henry that I realised what I was trying to do was to have an effect on an audience, which I suppose is what any writing is about, whether right. it's a book or. Anything. But I, it was like a big, it was a big sort of thing that I did, um, and so Henry really came about. Henry V came about um, simply because the radio was coming to an end, and I thought, well, now what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and we, I, I could have. I was a social worker for a while in, in, in London. That was my first sort of proper. Well, I was a police cadet actually, because <laughs> in Birmingham at that time, if you were tall, you went to the police cadets. If you weren't, you went to British Leyland to work on the track, and it was that kind of rover. So, uh, but I don't, I don't work in social as a, as a, in a, uh, a residential home in, 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 in London. Um, and so I didn't really know what to do. So I thought, well, do you know what I'm going to do? And I'd done a bit of Amdram, actually. I was taking a... That was love. I, t- I used to take this, uh, this, this woman to a local theatre in Birmingham, Hall Theatre, 
and um, uh, and they were great. They got a you know two hundred seater theatre, and and of course I go and pick her up on my motorbike, and someone mm-hmm. said, "Oh, come on, we need a bit of hand with the light," you know. So I got sort of ensnared into doing lighting for this for this Amdram company, and I can remember watching a guy Eric Yates, who's dead now, unfortunately, an amateur actor doing a, a line from I think it was Alan Bennett's Getting On, talking about the National Health Service being forced with the nicotine-stained teeth of half the nation, and he does this charade on stage, and I can remember up in the lighting box going, "Wow." That's powerful. That's more. That's more powerful than the telly, you know. So I was a bit of. I became a bit of a convent into theatre, and so, and and Henry V was interesting because I'd done a bit of Shakespeare at, at college and not really yeah. got it, you know. I'd seen, I'd seen Mary Wadd of Windsor and yeah, 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 whatever, you know. I hadn't really got it, and then I saw Ken Branagh's film of Henry V, uh, right. and suddenly realised that with a modern emotion, you know, Shakespeare didn't have to be. Oh my lord, you know, it didn't have to be that kind of. Posturing, and in actual fact, and then so I looked at it a little bit closer, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, actually, I think there's another way of telling this story. And in fact, Shakespeare does it. Shakespeare's got his main character isn't actually Henry V; it's Chorus, you know. So Shakespeare says, "Oh, for a musical fight, oh blimey, we're going to do this great tale, and we're in this little wood now, as he says at the start, you know." It's, confining mighty kings and now imagine work on your imaginations and see the vasty fields of France so Shakespeare did it so I thought well if Shakespeare did it <laughs> it's his play and actually of course he stole off Hollinshed I think it was that was one of the references I thought well I'll have a bash as well and I'll do it for me and I'll do it for me and I'll, I'll and it'll be well, I'll go out and I'll perform it 50 quid a night that'll do for when the disco work dries up so that, that was the notion and I actually wrote the very first page on an old Amstrad PCW one, I just got back from the pub I'd had a, I'd had a, 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 a ding dong, not a ding dong it was a fairly a rabid debate about, uh, about Shakespeare and I just realised I wasn't a clue what I was talking about but anyway and I got my little my penguin classic out and looked at what Shakespeare had written and I wrote my version I tried to stick to the metre and the verse mm-hmm. I didn't but I mean I tried to keep so you, a little bit you, of that you're trying to go somewhere near iambic pentameter, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah okay. a little bit, yeah. And then I thought, well, I need someone to read, read the script. So I only knew one actor from Paul Green, Little Fish, amateur actor, and he'd come to the drama studio in London mm. and come back with that brummy accent, so obviously he was good. So, and, uh, and he came round to my house and, you know, I said, just read it out so I can hear it. And then I kind of realised fairly quickly we moved the chairs, you know, and by the time he got to half Lure, I'd moved the furniture out and he was throwing himself around the room. And mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so and then we did, it, we did it at the Middles Arts Centre for uh, one night. And the Middles Arts Centre in Birmingham, it's a, a little, it's an 80-seater, or 60-seater theatre. It's a puppet theatre, actually. That's what, so, but they wouldn't give me anything else. And they said, well, we, you can rent theatre and put it on. So, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know. How, I, I knew how I wanted it to be, but I had no idea really how to get there. So the writing was was uh, partly descriptive. I knew I've got to keep the, the greatest hits in there, but I also thought, well, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch all the films that I can, and I watched all the Henry V films, and and made notes of what didn't work for me. So it's quite a serious process of research you've gone into here. Uh, yeah, it was, I suppose. Yeah, it was, actually. I mean, I, I, I went to Stratford, and at Stratford-upon-Avon, they've got all the old prompt copies. So you, I actually saw uh, Ken Branagh do Henry V at the Stratford Theatre, uh, and Adrian Noble directed it. Ah, no, sorry, it was Hamlet, actually. I saw that as well. I didn't see Henry V. I was too young for that, because Ken Branagh did it at Stratford years ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that. I saw him do Hamlet, but that's another... Because I did a version of Hamlet after I did Henry Oh, right, Fifth, OK. I wasn't aware of that either. Yeah, no, well, it's, it was... Because uh, well, Henry, Henry... So we did it in Birmingham for the first time, and literally it was one of those moments in the bar afterwards, I was a tap on the shoulder, and this bloke said, that was rather good. 
uh, I mean, I was a bit nervous because I booked this place, this studio, this theatre for 50 quid a night for three nights. Right. And my mate Keith, who, who was lodging with me at the time, I was the, the successor. <laughs> I was known for lodgers, though none of them ever paid me flipping rent. But anyway, and Keith was a teacher, and he was the one who'd seen my first drunken ramblings. He went, Oh, that's quite good. So that was, you know, he was a teacher, so that was enough for me. I carried on doing it. So and he, he wanted to direct John Gobber stuff. So we, we worked it out that I'd do my one hand in the middle and we'd do two Gobbers. Uh, and then I don't quite know why I was worried about the audience because they weren't going to be the same audience. But we did it, we did it at the Mac. And then there was a tap on the, on the shoulder afterwards. And because uh, I thought everyone was running out at the end, I thought, oh God, there's a. I didn't realize it was standing in Which never... is, I'm not sure you even mentioned this is a one person Henry V. Oh, yes, sure. Right. Sorry, yeah. yes. It's one person plays 12 characters effectively. And, uh, and it just follows the story of, of Shakespeare's Henry V, almost. Almost. <laughs> but there's a bit of a twist at the end. And I suppose it's not giving anything away, really. And fair to say, it's a bit of an anti-war play. Right, OK. Because as I was writing it, I remember going upstairs on my, on my nightly vigil, you know. So this to, would have been in the wake of the first Gulf War? Yeah, it was, uh, and Bosnia was kicking off. And I just thought, actually, nothing's changed. You know, here we are all these years later, the weapons are different, but there are still individual people being asked to do stupid things for stupid reasons. Is it set? Know. Is it set in the modern day, or is it yeah. set in? What choruses? Choruses. So the the the, uh, the there's a sort of a modern day stuff. I wanted it. I didn't want it to be Dublin and Hose, but on the other hand, I thought it'd be quite nice to be slightly off kilter. So chorus comes on, and in fact, the last time we did it here, it, it was played by a woman, uh, by a young woman, Ellie, who's uh, 23, I think 24. So and she she did a great job. But uh, yeah, chorus is normally. Sort of combats and boots and a, a long mm. coat that I bought from next years ago, which we seem to have used forever. We've got a we've got a throne uh, which is just lurking in that corner of the room as we speak. Yes, I can uh, see it. And see that it came right from now. The, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, mm-hmm. They they built that, and that's twenty. That was in nineteen ninety two. So it's the same company. throne you've been using same throne, for yeah. every performance. It's very repaired there because in, in in the show it gets thrown around a lot. You know, it gets. I wanted the the, the the quite nice pristine start of the show. This is why I was directing it as well. You see, I directed it myself, uh, so it was quite nice and pristine at the start. And by the end, there's chaos everywhere, and uh, so, and it's one actor does it all. And I, I mean, I, I have actually done it myself. I've done it twice. Once at a fundraiser at Birmingham Rep Theatre, uh, where I lost my voice, and I did it once in America because the, the, it was an American university were quite keen on this nutter who'd written <laughs> Shakespeare, and so and they wanted me to do it myself. They didn't want an actor to do it, so I did I did that, and that was quite uh, that was quite interesting so the, but the writing process was just I'd get out of the pub come home and when everyone when the telly finished uh, I think actually if the telly the telly used to finish at midnight in those days apart from the job screen you'd got on ITV so if that you know so I the distraction got, disappears yeah then, yeah I'll do a bit of writing so you're an after midnight sort of writer then yeah I tend to be I mean we joke about it and when I when I because the, the, there was a tap on the shoulder at, at, at the Midlands Arts Centre and there was this guy who said look that was great we'd like to take you to the Edinburgh Festival if you want to go and he, his name was John Stark. He was a couple called Star Ward. And I think they'd gone because they knew Rob, my actor, Rob Vomit. Mm-hmm. Rob Vomit. <laughs> Rob Stanson. We were called Rob Vomit. Oh. First time I went to him, oh, I'm Rob. Yeah, it was a party. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then, so we went to Edinburgh. And I'd never been to Edinburgh before. And we had this fantastic apartment overlooking the meadows. And I thought that was how every company did Edinburgh. Because it absolutely isn't. Uh, and we had expense accounts. And it was all very genteel and marvellous. But what I loved at the Edinburgh Festival, which I've not seen before, was this kind of energy, this manic, any space in Edinburgh. I don't know if you've been to the Edinburgh Festival. But oh, it's, I have not. I would love to go. Yeah, it's, it's kind of I mean, it's a number of festivals. 
festivals as well, you know. It's not, but the Fringe Festival is... I mean, we got, we got really friendly with a company that... Because we've got, you know, th- uh, five-bedroom flat for three of us, snooker table. Mm-hmm. These people are 20 of them on the, on the floor of a barn somewhere outside town, Edinburgh, you know. So they just want to come and line our carpet, you know. But Edinburgh is this incredible energy. And so I wanted to take that and, and bring it to Birmingham, which is, you know, Britain's second city, and there wasn't much going on in terms of Fringe Theatre. And so I went back to Birmingham going, hooray, this is great, it's inclusive, it'll, you know, we're going to start this new pop theatre thing about new audiences. Uh, and we were kind of <laughs> met mainly with, uh, really? It wasn't, it wasn't particularly well received by the funding bodies, partly because they didn't a lot of money. It was 1992 and there'd been a world recession and a Tory government, that's never going to happen again, is it? Uh, and uh, social inclusion was not, um, <laughs> was not a, uh, wasn't, an, you know, on no one's mind. And what, but what I wanted to do, because I was born in, you know, on this county state in King's Heath, and no one I knew ever went to university. No one I knew ever went to the theatre. Mm-hmm. And of course, and then because I got this radio job where I suddenly I was working with the Oxbridge types who were very lovely, I kind of realised it wasn't that we were stupid, it was just no one had asked us, you know. Um, so we started to do, with the spirit of Edinburgh almost, we started to do uh, plays in a pub in Birmingham. And the, the so was the, was the script changing over this period, or was it the same script you'd written down beginning in your drunken haze? Henry, Henry's been virtually unchanged for 20-odd years, strangely. Mm. I'm not sure if that's because I got it absolutely right. Although we did change it because we've just done it this year with a woman, and I managed to put, I put Catherine back in, because uh, uh, the actor has to become... Uh, you know, has to take on 12 characters with credibility. And it's not comedy. He fights the Battle of Asian Court on his own at uh-huh. the end. It's not, there's humour in there, yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's, uh, it's not a comedy. So, so there has to be some... And if he'd become Catherine, suddenly it would have been Carry On Up the Agincourt or something. So I didn't ever have the male actors playing Catherine, who is the, the princess. Mm-hmm. And it was actually an interesting character because she, in a sense, uh, reflects the, 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 the French realise that England's coming, you know, that he's strong and he's great. And he's, so she, she almost, even though she's a princess, has a voice of every man for a while. So... Uh, so I, have this, I, re, I put Catherine in for this last production because we had a woman playing the part. But no, it's kind of been more or less... It's been fairly worryingly, in one sense. It's been kind of... I'm, we're still using the 92 version, you know, the old mm-hmm. printed-out thing from the Amstrad PCW, God bless. Another technology thing that was it. Um, but so, and it, and so we started to do a place for new, uh, new audiences... And it would have been easier if we'd been doing new writing. And I set up a company called Maverick, Maverick Theatre Company. It was mm-hmm. 21 years ago this year, in fact. Uh, uh, and with a view to attracting new audiences. And the proposition wasn't, here's a great new play, but the proposition was, don't go to a video shop, come and see a play. This is where it all started. No retakes, no going back. It's live in front of you. You can have a pint and a fag, which is good in those days. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. So we started to get this kind of new audience, people who'd never been to the theatre before. And we did research quite early on. Uh, you know, it was only sheets on seats kind of thing. But we did some fairly rudimentary and basic research right from the start. Uh, and, and it was right. I mean, people were coming who hadn't... And in fact, people would talk about going to see a maverick, which was quite nice. So after a couple of three years, we were at the point where we could start to introduce new writing. And the, the funding bodies had gone, well, if you do new writing, I go, no, it's not about new writing, it's about new audiences. Mm-hmm. And then the funding bodies, oh, what, the BME would do? Well, yeah, yes, but also the kind of unenfranchised, you know, dirty white working class, of which I am one, you know. So it was, uh, it was really hard to get that, um, that message across in so, terms of funding. Uh, and were you still, so you were writing for this? No, we were, I, was, I was really directing. Right. Uh, and then uh, we got Henry. And the, cause the thing about Henry V was that it, it, it sort of, 
In 92, there weren't star ratings, so you didn't get five stars or two stars or one stars. But uh, all the reviews that came out, even the slasher from the Scotsman, God mm. bless him, Owen Dudley Edwards, who was this kind of feared reviewer, came in on our preview. And if you know theatre, normally you sort of have a few rehearsals as the preview nights. He came in on a preview, so we were a bit worried about that. But even he liked it. Uh, and, and, you know, I got regularly kind of, oh, it's another tour de force. You know, the reviews were just unanimously... Raves, really. So you, had, you had a great success with your first piece of work, really, then. Your first yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was a bit stupid with my producer head on, because, I mean, I wasn't really a producer then. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there were lots of people. We had offers to go around the world, and Rob took some of the cards, you know, and I would leave him in the pub one night. You know, we didn't, we didn't really have a plan for following this up. I know I bumped into a bloke from South Africa a few years later, because we did it again in Stratford-upon-Avon, who'd come to see it in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and said, sorry, we couldn't work that out, but apartheid was falling apart, you know, and we got, we got the agency were coming into power, and we thought, should we use this money for arts or for housing and we go oh, housing that's kind of good probably made the right decision I think they did yeah yeah uh, so it was just so we you know I say the first time in Edinburgh uh, slightly blown away just having a bit of a laugh and a lot of the commercial opportunities that I now know came along we just didn't really take up on but I came back charged with that notion of creating a theatre environment like that in Birmingham so really I was uh, and we were doing so we were doing we never did an eightbourne for instance because that's all a bit you know manners and middle class we did quite a lot of gobber which back then was was a bit more cutting edge we do things like Bernard Slade same time, uh, same time next year and the Willie Russell plays you know because uh-huh. I mean people don't, well, I saw a photograph of Educating Rita on your website oh uh, right yeah. yeah oh we did that a couple of times I mean the very the very first Educating Rita was I directed uh-huh. and I thought it was quite appropriate to do that because it's about someone learning you know so I think there was yeah. a kind of a bit of a subtext there it's a nice straightforward play to stage as well I would have thought uh, yes it is and the way I did it was was, was again there were no artifice about it so you, there was a, uh, the two stage hands if you like and the set changes all happened in almost real time so mm-hmm. so they there were no blackouts or anything people the, you know the audience would see the, the props being changed and the set being changed and the actor standing character throughout so Frank would acknowledge the props girl you know uh-huh. or, so and, and we had quite a banging soundtrack you know which was chosen by Susan White by Rita uh, as we said in the programme but it wasn't so and I wanted to try and keep a sort of an edge to everything that we did and, and, and that went down quite well yeah for, uh, and that was the first one that we did so I was directing but then of course I realised like most people um, <clears throat> that it's all well and good creating me stuff, but it's, it's ultimately got to pay for itself, you know, and the funding bodies weren't helping out. We got a bit of help from the brewery, thankfully, from mm-hmm. Ansel's, as they were then, uh, which didn't last when they became a corporate, because they then gave money to RSC and didn't bother about anyone else, but I'm not bitter. Uh, but, uh, so we, we, we were producing plays that would attract a new, that new audience, you know, and then we did Trench Kiss, a play by Arthur Smith, you know. Uh, and then okay. things got a bit bigger, and uh, 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 we did an evening with Gary Lineker, and then we looked to start to tour. We did what, what tour was Gary Lineker? What? Oh, an evening with Gary Lineker. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I was thinking, did Gary Smith. Lineker write a play now? No, he didn't. No. Of course, one or two people came up from our audience as expecting to see an evening with Gary Lineker, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, and ended up staying mainly. There weren't any complaints. So, and it was, it's, a, it's a play about the 1990 World Cup, written uh-huh. again by Arthur Smith and Chris England. So, and at that point, I suddenly realised that, you know, we've got to let people know about this. So I started to I started to producing, and um, but then once we got a more regular audience, the, the writing thing had never really left me, and I started to do, funnily enough, a version of a Christmas Carol because I thought, well, you know, our audience can sustain this now. We were getting to the point where we were doing three-week runs every six weeks. Uh, it actually got a little bit difficult. It got a bit political at one point because 
one of the newspapers in one of the main newspapers in the Midlands, uh, the Birmingham Mail, picked up on the fact that we were unsubsidised and doing all this, you know, six thousand people a show were turning up for you know a five or a ticket against the massive rep theatre that had got millions of pounds of subsidy and was kind of closed more than we were. So it all got a bit nasty actually. I didn't like that at all. But before that, we decided. I thought, well, I'll write a version of a Christmas Carol, and it was. Um, one of those things where I hadn't really structured, I didn't really have a structure for writing other than just doing, you know. I realise that now, just get it down. I didn't at the time. But it's interesting, the interesting thing is whether you changed the way you went about it from when you'd written Henry to when you were doing the Christmas Carol version. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 well, there were a couple of things that if you're writing for, like I was, and like most writers for, you know, fringe theatre, for small scale theatre, you, you can't have a cast of thousands. Mm-hmm. Although, in fact, with Henry, we did, because we had a lot of sound effects and. Uh, it was a hugely technical show. I mean, it had 300 cues and they're all time specific and volume specific. And I had to get in touch with Ken Branagh's sound guy to get the arrows, you know, because we, we pan them over there and just punt a blaster so the audience gets blinded and stuff. So, so I wanted that to be a semiotic, this kind of a semiotic approach, you know, it's all encompassing approach. Mm-hmm. But then writing, I was starting to write uh, a, a Ghost of a Chance, so it became Ghost of a Chance. I was starting to write a Christmas Carol. And my, my, I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning it now, my brother had been made redundant. It was at the time when a lot of people who'd been in jobs for a long time had been booted out and they were bringing kids in who would do it for half the price and then mm-hmm. they'd boot them out after they'd sold to their mum and dad. Well, and bring the, in a, the, the mid-90s. Yeah, period. yeah, exactly. And, I, and, I, and I'd started as Bob, and, and in fact the characters in A Ghost of a Chance are called Bob and Tim because mm-hmm. it was Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim. Um, but it went somewhere else really quickly and I'd started with a, because I was in the, in the vein of, of having, you know, a chorus mm-hmm. uh, or writing with a chorus. So I had Tiny Tim effectively do a, an epilogue, a prologue, sorry, uh, which eventually disappeared in the final version because the director, John Adams, thought it was better not to. Um, uh, and, and then it, it, and it, it just became, effectively, it then became this Faustian tale. One of the reviewers called it a cross between Poltergeist and Faust. Mm-hmm. And it became a two-actor where, where a guy effectively goes out every day and doesn't tell anyone that he's lost his job. And he's got no money and he's desperate. And he's, right, uh, he's, yeah. in, and he's drinking a lot because he could still afford to just about do that. But there's no end in sight. And then suddenly, one night, in a bit of a drunk... He starts under the table. Uh, uh, this voice appears and says, Ha-ha, Bob, I can solve all your problems. I'll give you the winning lottery numbers next week. And then there's a, there's, But then there's a cost to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is, is this running parallel? Is this sort of running parallel to a modern version of a Christmas Carol where he's he's just not seeing what's going on in the rest yeah. of the story? Are you changing that? No, I mean it, it, was, it became very different. Really, I mean it, 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 it's a Faustian tale, really, but but a domestic Faustian tale. Okay. <clears throat> so we used to talk about kitchen sink drama. There is it's set in a kitchen mm-hmm. in a house in Birmingham, and the, the fridge fills up with money. So apart from that, we haven't got any special effects. And and the bottom line, so and actually, of course, the the, the moral dilemma is. Uh, uh, again, through research, if you look through history, there have been some very famous people mm-hmm. who've had sons disappear or die young. So uh, people like uh, Limburg, Charles Lindbergh, you know, the American aviator, uh, had a son that was kidnapped and murdered. There was uh, a Shakespeare, mm-hmm. his son Hamlet, and he lost his son quite young. And so I kind of, in a <laughs> slightly spooky way, put all these together. And so our main character, Bob, has all this to happen. But he has to give up his son, and that's the kind of the moral dilemma: does he, doesn't he? Okay. Uh, which is, sounds like a, man, a fairly massive uh, thing, you know. Although I, I uh, uh, in a sense, I kind of perhaps didn't give it some of the, the gravitas that it deserved. 
But anyway, we did it and, and we put it in for, I wrote it uh, as Bob and Tim, yeah. Uh, and it was called A Ghost of a Chance and I put in to the uh, Arts Council and the City Council expecting to get nothing and, and it was also submitted to the Guinness uh, the Guinness used to do a thing you know the brewery the pub, mm-hmm. called the, the Guinness Pub Theatre Awards and we, we submitted it it was a journalist who phoned me up and said oh have you heard about this pub theatre award I went nope and it was judged by the National Theatre mm-hmm. the Nash as I like to say but, and, uh, and we won it, we won this award. So uh, I got a, a chunk of cash to put the show on and then we also got the Arts Council money and we got the, uh, the, the City Council money. So for the first time really, my script was, it was completely funded. So we got, there's a guy called Paul Henry who used to be Benny in Crossroads years ago, quite a famous Brummie soap star. Mm-hmm. He came and did it. And then John Adams, who used to be the Artistic Director of Birmingham Rep and Bolton Octagon and in fact was involved with Kenneth Bonner's Renational Theatre Company. <clears throat> he came in, I sent him the script and he went, Ooh, I'd love to do it. So, um, uh, and we found a, a boy to play uh, Justin, a boy to play Tim, and we, there was a film sequence in it as well, so we, got, we were able to go, and, and it's the, the, the family, basically he looks back at, you know, why, do I, why am I in this situation, I don't want a lot of money, I just want a comfortable life, and this is not comfortable. Uh, and so we filmed bits in Ireland of the, the Ox Mountains, and had his, so there was quite a lot involved. A, it sounds like it started as a quite a, a sort of... Uh, Small idea, but then you ended up being extremely ambitious with how you how how it turned out. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, yes, I, I don't have any fear of. I mean, the, the glorious thing about theatre, and I, you see, I, I'm almost, I, I, oh, I'm a theatre writer. Well, I do, I suppose, I've written plays. But when I look at someone like Simon Stevens, who's who's done some, you know, incredibly uh, incredible stuff, or even Mark Ravens here, or any of the sort of the contemporary playwrights, I'm not clever at that, and I'm not really trying to be. My subtexts aren't very subby, you know. They're, they're, what I want is I want the answer. Super text, yeah, exactly. I no underlining or strike through. Um, but I want to move an audience, really. And so sometimes you have to be perhaps less than subtle to move an audience. I'm having this debate myself at the moment. Only because we went to Edinburgh, and we did quite well in Edinburgh. We got mainly three and four star reviews, but the three star reviews were because I was too optimistic. They didn't oh, like okay. the fact. They didn't like the fact that I, Hennigan's obviously an optimist, uh, which I am, of course. I think you've got to be running a theatre company. Well, there is this myth, isn't there, about writers being miserable? I mean, uh, yeah. we were talking about it earlier on the Global Lab bit, where we were talking about people sort of drinking themselves to, to destruction. Yes. But there are. That's that's not necessarily all of it. I mean, I. I I'm thinking really of reading uh, Russell T. Davis's book. Have you read his uh, book about writing? No, I haven't. No, it's an absolutely I... fantastic book. Um, oh, and he, well, he he is miserable quite a lot of the time. Yeah. But he he does say he thinks it's a complete myth that you should be writing about miserable things. Yeah. That there's as much drama in happiness and and, and goodness as there is in sort of black and, absolutely. You know, death I mean, and destruction. I, I didn't realise he'd written the book. I'm a big fan of Russell T. Yeah. Because I saw Queer as Folk, which kind of passed me by a little bit because it wasn't it wasn't particularly my church. But then I saw Doctor Who. <laughs> and my God, he can write that boy. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, he's been around. And I bumped fully enough this. Uh, I've done this screenplay, which may or may not do things. And it was uh, who's taken over um, Moffat, Stephen Moffat, Moffat yeah. was one of the. He was one of the lecturers at the Cheltenham International Screenwriting Festival a few years back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had quite a long chat with Stephen. Lovely bloke, but I couldn't really say. But how are you going to compete with Russell T. <laughs> His scripts. I used to watch Doctor Who, the new Doctor, and just go, "Whoa!" You know, yeah. the episode had finished. You go, "My God, what's going to?" I did think Russell T. Davis was brilliant. He's a, he's a yeah. hero of mine, certainly. Oh, good. Oh, well, we share that then. It was yeah. interesting because I was looking... Um, I'm not really big into the Doctor Who fan community, but um, I was kind of on the forums and things, seeing lots of people didn't appreciate his writing. No. Because I think coming from a science fiction... There, there's something about some 
science fiction fans, which that they appreciate writing a different way from from people who like other types of drama, I think. Yes. And whereas I was looking at his writing and thinking, this is absolutely brilliant. What he's yeah. managed to bring into this this series and how he's yeah. managed to transform it into something which is genuinely sort of uh, uh, transformative and you know just full of humanity. Yeah, it, it, was. it was epic, wasn't it? It was, it was epic on every amazing. scale, really. And he used to, I mean, some of his... And some of the scripts were, you know, some of the scripts were better than others. I mean, I have to say, well, <laughs> some of Stephen's scripts, not that it's, uh, really? Um, but as you a, sure you as want to the, say this? No, I shouldn't really. I love Stephen Moffat. All yeah. oh, these others were great. But, so, okay, you know, but you could see, oh, it wasn't so much that the scripts were bad. You could just see that there was a, there was a, a change in subject matter. And, you're, and, and, and Russell got that. Got a common touch almost, I think. Very much it's, so. It's perhaps, yeah. and, I'm, and I think that's a nice thing to have. I think I hope you have got the common touch. I mean, the, the play I did after Ghost of Chance was a thing called Powell's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so know, this for, I, I watched a, a trailer of this. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, that's all I could find there, yeah. Yeah, there isn't much more of it about, really. But we, you, it does say on the Maverick Theatre website that that's coming back this year. Yes, is that going to happen? It might do. It might do, yeah. Let's I mean, just say what this play is. Well, yeah, it's, it's power. It's basically about four kids growing up on a county state in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we did it at the Billsley, obviously. And it was it was at the time when, uh, uh, at the same year, I wrote uh, a Ghost of a Chance. And in fact, had I had the chance, I would have taken. So we took Ghost up to Edinburgh. But I, I read Ghost of a Chance. When I did Ghost of a Chance, it's set in a kitchen, mm-hmm. and I always envisaged it as a. A pros arch, you know, the theatre pros arch where you've got the traditional kind of arch, right? And a theatre. Yeah. Powers, I never saw that. Powers was like in your face and it would have been a thrust theatre stage, kind of, which mm-hmm. is a bit more into And had I had the chance, I'd probably have taken Powers to Edinburgh because, in a sense, it's more of an Edinburgh show. And it's, it's four kids, uh, really, it's, just, it's four kids growing up. And actually, mm-hmm. it's kind of my life story, I suppose, if I'm honest. I've never really built it as that. but um, and, it, and an amalgam of things that happened to me and happened to other people. So it starts so, in the. This is a very different thing then because the, the previous things we talked about. Started as other other works, right? You had Henry V, and you had something yeah. that grew out of a Christmas Carol. Whereas this was an original piece. So yeah. was the process of writing that very different, or was it just similar? It's almost what you said. I mean, it was it was having the notion first. It was almost what you said that there is so much drama in in all of our lives anyway. And if you you know you look at EastEnders and Coronation Street, they're kind of they're popular, uh, arguably, because obviously there's drama in there and there's tension and there's all those other things. But there's a lot of normality. I remember, was it Michael Cashman, who was the first gay character on telly, I think, you know, he was on EastEnders and he used to walk around his fighter facts and he had a, a young, sort of younger boyfriend and, uh, and he's an MEP now, I think. I think he still is an MEP. Uh, and he was saying that, in a sense, we did more for gay rights with having a gay character in EastEnders mm-hmm. than any of the, the kind of the more strident stuff that had happened. And so with Powell's, it was just, I thought, well, um, we've got an audience now, we've built an audience who are going to see a Maverick, and they all know Billsley Common, but in actual fact, the tales are universal. It doesn't matter whether you live in Birmingham or whether you live in London or Edinburgh or America even. There's the moon landings in there. I mean, there are some cultural references there. The, the four actors... So the, the, these people, uh, these are four kids that grew up, so yeah, in line with your it's own life story. then? Yeah, it's, it's the four kids' story, really, growing up. But, so it's four actors, and they play... The Powell's is Pete, Andy, Linda, Sue. Mm-hmm. So it's their initials, Powell's. Pete and Lindsay, uh, and and I kind of did it. The, the way of working was very different with this because I got the story in my head, and uh, I what I wanted to do that because everyone's growing up, <laughs> some more than others. <laughs> I wanted to work with. I wanted to try and devise it a little bit more. Um, it was only a partly successful exercise, I have to say. Now, so that's something you said on in relation to the other things as well. It seems that you're looking back on these things. Do you think when you look back at your writing, I wish I'd done things differently? Or? 
Not, not really. No, I, I, I wish I'd had more money. That's all. No, no, I don't. I, I think, you're saying you didn't think you'd done the idea justice necessarily of no, the Christmas Carol script. The problem, well, the part of the problem is if you're producing as well. So most right. of the time, because I've written and I've produced my own stuff, uh, which the Arts Council are now saying, well, everyone should do that. I'm not sure that's quite right, but it, it means. I mean, it, you know, when when uh, I know it can. Branagh was acting, he'd always had Hugh Crutwell from RADA, he always had Hugh there as his old sort of head of drama school, always there to watch his performance, that's all he did, Hugh Crutwell was just paid to come and watch Branagh's performance because as he's, you know, he said I'm directing it and I'm acting it, so I've got to be careful that I get both right, and I can deal with the directing so I can look at the screen afterwards, but I need someone to critique my performance, and it's a bit like that, with Powell's, the story is, is four kids growing up, four actors uh, they play the parents, their parents. They play each other's parents, mm-hmm. and they play. And the first half, it's in two acts. And I, I kind of slightly pompously called the first act green grass, mm-hmm. and the second act concrete. And these four kids grow up together, and they're you know, there's a school nativity play. And I mean, one of the reviewers said there's nothing new in it in a sense. It's about, but we did it quite as a, a quite a physical piece with a, a director I'd worked with a lot. Uh, Julia Smith and we wanted it to be quite physical and have a lot of music in it so it's a fairly raucous piece and the first act uh, I used to love it really uh, 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 when we did it in Birmingham because the first act I mean I had no idea if anyone was going to turn up I mean we, we were starting to build an audience but this wasn't the Willie Russell you know it was the same as we'd done Ghost of a Chance had worked well that mm-hmm. sold out because it had got Paul Henry in it you know this was four really good actors um, but no star names, and no, you know. So we, I was a bit concerned. The first night we, we had about twelve people in, right? and then um, word spread, and and so they one of them doesn't make it. Am I giving this away? I'm not sure if I'm a spoiler alert, but one of them doesn't make it. And well, if, so, it's, if it's coming back this year, then yeah, yeah you should be I, careful. I should be careful, shouldn't I? Really? Uh, but it's the it's the only play, uh, and so but as the, the, the reason, yeah, from the process point of view. What I did with uh, A Ghost of a Chance was I gave it to John Adams, who's a very experienced... He, he sort of set up Payne's Plough, the new theatre writing company that's celebrating 40 years or something. Mm-hmm. So he's a very experienced guy at working with new writing. And he was, he's also good at working with writers because he gently pointed me in one or two directions, some which I didn't want to go to, and that mm-hmm. was OK. Um, there was quite a bit of repetition in Ghost. Although, of course, I think Shakespeare, there's a lot of repetition in Shakespeare as well. But with, with Powell's, it was um, because I was producing and I was working with a very physical director mm-hmm. in the process, what really mattered to the creator of the piece, which is the director, was the physicality of it. And, and so some of the nuance, I think, of the language and uh, some of the situations were, were lost, I think, because of that. That's me being critical of myself, though. And because mm-hmm. if you're a writer with a producer, you've got the producer and go, look, this maybe isn't working or... You know, uh, whereas if you're producing, there's nowhere else to go. If you're the writer and the producer, and and because the director does, directors do what they do. And I think as if, if you're producing something, you're keeping a bit of casting as the director. Uh, and in this case, Julie did a brilliant job, and and uh, uh, and it wouldn't have worked without her. So I mean, I'm not being, I'm only being hypercritical myself. Some of the some of the uh, dialogue was perhaps a bit clunky than it could have been. Some of the situations, but it moves along at a pace. And at the end, uh, the uh, the end of the piece concrete uh, when they're all grown up and of course it's set at the time of the 11 plus as well which was quite so you either went to grammar school or you didn't that came into it there's a lot of music there's disco in there which gets it's very cynical one of the characters there's a lot of specials and the scar music's in there as well and then they kind of grow up and they're, they're, and it, we leave them and just they're sort of in their early teens and that's when it all goes slightly wrong and 
uh, at the end of that piece, in the interval in Birmingham, people had come out laughing about and joking. We had to stand by the door and just hear what was going on, you know, laughing and joking. Oh, wasn't it? No one spoke to me on the way out at the end. Because <laughs> in the second act, there's child abuse, there's all this sort of thing, and no one, no one. But they were in tears. And it, it actually, I mean, I'm not exactly, it physically quite worried me when we first did Powers. Mm. And the very first night, there were only 12 people in. Uh, and, uh, and because of the way I like to, to direct and produce, um, I hate it in theatre when the show finishes and someone <laughs> starts playing. And you know it's the director or it's the techie, or, yeah. and I don't like that. Because I think the audience should feel it, and if they don't clap, that's fine. You know, they, they should. The audience, that's what theatre's about. You know, and and it happened at Power, the first night at Powell's, and I was sitting at the back quite nervously, uh, and uh, and slightly welling up myself. I have to say, every time I saw it, uh, and I thought, what, what's happening? You know, and and the, the audience, and every single one of the twelve people were in tears. They were just in bits and snivelling, and, and and then the music starts, and they shuffle their way out. And the only time I've seen anything like that, I have to say, and it's a nice comparison to make, it was the first time I saw Les Miserables mm-hmm. at the Palace Theatre. I, I didn't really know what it was about. It had just transferred. I was going out with this girl, and she got me some tickets. Uh, and at the end of that, I was a bit, oh, blah, you know. And I looked round, feeling a bit stupid, and everyone else was going, oh, and, and the only time I've seen that is with, with Pals. And it just went on then, and word spread. And uh, we did a three-week run, which sold out. I mean, uh, uh, we, yeah, capacity of about 200 you know so it's not a massive thing and then we did it again uh, and we've done it three three times now and each time it's sold out we've not done it for a few years and it's only ever been done it's never been seen outside the Midlands so it might be a co-production with a with another theatre mm-hmm. uh, this year uh, well it'll be 16 now so it'll be next year if it happens and I've also got funny enough a Doctor Who person in mind because the, the original I love the original cast but but with a the best way in the world, I know I've got to, you know, I want to cast it up a little bit. And, and because I've been working a bit more in the West End, mm-hmm. I kind of know what I've got to do. And actually, the, the cast, a bit like when I did Henry, I mean, I, Henry V is a hard act part. To, you know, in Edinburgh, Rob Vomit, the first actor, was constantly in bruises and... Because I, I, they throw himself all over the place, you know. They, they, it's a hard thing to do. And Powell's was the same, you know. Powell's is a very physical piece where they're jumping around and they're at it for two hours. And That's I'm a sure different original, thing to write as well, then, if you... It, it, it is, it is. And it was, it was, it was a strange process because I didn't really tell anyone, anyone at all, because there's some horrible things in there. I didn't tell anyone that it was really my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not really admitting, well, I'm admitting it now to you, but I, I kind of never really... Uh, so it was, it was strange structuring scenes that were very real. Although when my folks came to see it, apart from the second act, which no one really liked, because they didn't really like it, you know, it was upsetting, second yeah. act, and deliberately so, you know, because that's what happens in life, doesn't it? We all have burdens, you know, I'm sure things that have gone on in your life that you really don't want to remember or have been horrible or have, you know. So that's, that's what life's about, isn't it? It's the, the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, yeah. as it were. And so, uh, we, we've, so the writing of that was quite interesting. But it was quite liberating, and I'd just do the sides, as they say, and I'd go in in the morning to rehearsals and go, okay, this is the scene that we want to do. Mm-hmm. And then I'd kind of leave them to it. I'd be there for a couple of hours, and then I'd leave them to it, and they could do what they liked with it. So it was, it was fairly um, interesting. Uh, uh, and there were bits that were added, but, but basically, I, I, if I did that process again, I'd probably be a bit more, I'd be a bit tighter on the dialogue, that's all. I mean, it's a small note. Mm-hmm. But it worked. It worked quite well. And it's, I mean, you know, when it does. I mean, I did after Henry V. I did a version of Hamlet called Hamlet Horatio's Tale, which mm-hmm. I also wrote and directed and produced. And that was a well, it's a bit of a nightmare because Derek Jacobi, uh, you know, so Derek Jacobi was uh, was my um, like the voice of my ghost. Because I, I didn't want a physical ghost. 
and I was banging on at a party in London saying, you know, oh, Jack would be the perfect voice wise. And somebody said, oh, why don't you ask him? So I did, and he phoned me up. He went, yes, of course I'll do it. Fantastic. I nearly fell off me flipping. Still, and he was brilliant. I mean, uh, uh, I'll, I'll always be great because I went to. We recorded it at the Royal Shakespeare Company. They got a, they call the radio room, or they used to. I don't know if it's still there. Oh. And uh, bless him. So I'm telling. I'm thinking. Right, all right. So Derek Jacoby, but he's an actor. Yeah. I've written. His, I'm directing him. So and I'm sitting there. And Rob, my mate, who wrote, wrote has written a lot of music for. He wrote the music for Henry V, uh, and he wrote music for Hamlet as well. He's a good composer and a great illustrator as well. He was doing the you know recording stuff and he said that's the only time I've ever heard you really really fumble your words because I was telling Derek Jacobi what Hamlet was all about which is what you do with an actor and it was only when I was telling him this that I suddenly remembered I remember a story I think it was John Adams was telling me that when Derek Jacobi directed Kenneth Branagh in Hamlet uh, for Renaissance Theatre Company and they had you know in do rehearsals you normally have a stage manager there on the book to prompt people if they forget their lines and they didn't need anyone to prompt because Derek as a director knew not only Hamlet he knows the whole play inside out he knows all the words all the speeches and there's me and bless him he's sitting there nodding and listening to me telling him what Hamlet's all about I've still got the audio actually and and because it sold out Branagh was uh, um, Jacobi was was involved, and we only did small theatres. This was the whole point of Maverick. We were that uh, was the last theatre I did before we went to the pub completely. I wouldn't do theatres for a while. I was only you know theatres or art centres, the art love. No, we're doing it down a pub in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, and it, and it, and that was that was a system of that that kind of went slightly wrong as well. I mean the, the, oh, I mean I won't bore you with the whole thing now. Partly it was the, it's that thing of producing again. If you're writing and you're producing. It's, uh, I developed this twitch apparently my girlfriend tells me that she was quite worried about me you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, and because Jacoby was in, in it suddenly the whole world went to come and see it and we got, it was, this was at the Middles Arts Centre again and we did uh, five nights I think and they all sold out obviously, I got the VAT wrong so we actually didn't make any money which was really annoying so if you're producing remember the VAT uh, and uh, it was and, and so there, there comes a point where you know actually the script, we, we knocked an hour off our, our getting day, the theatre cocked up and we couldn't do a getting. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things went wrong with that, you know. It sounds like there's many, many stories on that one. I, I'm a bit worried we were going to get chucked out of the room in a minute because oh, they yeah, said they wanted it half past five. Yeah, no, so, uh, well, <laughs> no, that's all right. yeah, much as I, I don't want us to miss uh, sort of being able to end it properly. So, um, I should say thank you very much. It's been absolutely fantastic talking oh, well, to you. Oh, thank you for and, your time. Um, yeah. I really appreciate the time you've. Uh, you've oh, spent you're welcome. Cheers. Good luck with the radio stuff as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. I also recorded an interview with Nick about the London Literary Pub Crawl specifically, uh, which will feature in an upcoming episode of the Global Lab podcast. Keep an eye on soundcloud.com forward slash the hyphen global hyphen lab to see that when it comes out. Um, If you want to hear the interview about Nick's career that was on The Zone Show, uh, go to thezoneshow.com. It's episode number 141. You can follow Nick on Twitter at nhennigan. That's N-H-E-N-N-E-G-A-N. Or follow me at Mathistopheles. Thanks for listening.